Hello and welcome to episode 42 of Life with Fire podcast. I'm your host, Amanda Montai, and I am at the International Association of Wildland Fire Conference up in Edmonton, Alberta, and I'm hearing tons of great stuff from a ton of great speakers and researchers and scientists, and I decided that I should start pulling people aside and having some conversations with them, build a little context on what they're talking about or what research they're doing, and uh, try to get some episodes to you guys while I'm here at the conference surrounded by really smart people. So with that said, uh, we're going to be talking to Sarah Henderson today. Uh, Sarah is the Scientific Director of Environmental Health Services at the BC Center for Disease Control. She is a really fantastic resource for anything related to public health and wildfire smoke. So she had a great talk yesterday that I sat in on um, discussing some of the paradoxes of our perception of wildfire smoke and, um, and how it impacts communities. So I wanted to get her on the show to talk a little bit more about what she spoke about yesterday as well as to build a little bit of context and understanding about how we can better live with wildfire smoke as that is probably one of our only options moving forward is to really adapt to the presence of wildfire smoke. And uh, so she talks us through a few of the solutions that she's seen working. And she's also, you know, she, she talks about the inherent challenges, of course, in getting a lot of this policy implemented and a lot of these, these solutions implemented. So uh, we talk a little bit about that and kind of what she's seen to be working on the ground. So some great solutions in here, a couple, um, you know, she kind of addresses some of the misconceptions that can, can that can come up, especially uh, surrounding the communication of wildfire smoke and the communication of those impacts to, um, to populations that are being impacted. So great conversation. Um, I'm keeping this as rapid as possible with the intro. So I guess without further ado, let's hear it from Sarah. Thanks as always for listening, and I hope you guys enjoy this episode. Let's start with the paradox of perceived risk. So I think when you are talking to people who aren't knowledgeable about wildfire smoke and air pollution epidemiology, the perception is that if the air quality is 10 times worse than usual, it's 10 times worse for your health than usual. And that's not actually how air pollution works. This isn't specific to smoke. All types of air pollution, we see what we call a log linear relationship, which means that the biggest increases in risk to health happen at the lowest concentrations, and then that risk plateaus. So when we're talking about wildfire smoke, we're often talking about fine particulate matter or particles less than 2.5 microns in diameter as an indicator of the health risk we really see that after concentrations of about 100 to 150 micrograms per meter cube, the risk flattens off. So there's no real difference at 300 or 400 compared to 200. And that's, that's hard, that intuitively that doesn't make any sense, but it's probably due to how our bodies respond to these exposures and you know after a certain level your body's just kind of tapped out you can't do anymore it's as inflamed as it's going to get so we the point of the paradox that I really wanted to focus on is that most of our exposures are relatively low we do have these extreme exposures sometimes 
most of the health risk and the health burden due to wildfire smoke is in those sort of moderate exposure categories, but everybody starts paying attention to wildfire smoke when the skies are orange and when it's really, really bad. So we need to shift our thinking about this exposure so that as soon as it gets smoky, we're starting to communicate about the potential risks and starting to encourage people to start taking protective action so that they are protected not only at the very high end of the spectrum, but also at the low end of the spectrum. Absolutely. Yeah, and I think a big question that I've had recently especially is how we can more effectively communicate those things, and especially to communities that are being directly impacted and are, are angry. I'm thinking especially of the Seattle community recently with the Bolt Creek Fire. You know, they had six weeks of really bad impacts, and um, by the end of that six weeks, it was getting, they were there was some definite tension, some definite anger, and so in what ways are we maybe not communicating as effectively as we could be and what can you see as a good solution there? So the anger that you point out is interesting and we see it in British Columbia as well and what I think of that type of anger, I think of people who don't feel empowered to protect themselves. There's no good reason to be angry at wildfire smoke. <laughs> the, the smoke isn't out there to make you angry. It, uh, it's doing what it does. The weather is pushing it around as it pushes it. There's, you know, that's, that's really not a good way to use your limited energy. A good way to lose, use your limited energy is to educate yourself about how best to protect yourself from these exposures. And there are some very simple things that we can do individually to protect ourselves. One is looking at the indoor environment where you live, how to keep smoke out of that environment, and how to clean smoke out of that environment if it gets in. Another is thinking about the way you spend your time outside. We don't all want to get locked up indoors for weeks at a time when we have these episodes, but you know, going for a walk outside versus going for a run outside, you're probably talking a tenfold difference in exposure because any increased respiration rate is going to increase your smoke exposure. So take it easy when you're outdoors. Consider wearing some sort of respiratory protection if you know that you are sensitive to these smoke exposures. Spend time in other cleaner indoor air environments and just really try to learn to live with smoke and that's one of the key messages I think that's coming out of this conference. We cannot eliminate fire, we must not eliminate fire, and smoke is part of fire. As a collective we need to learn to live with fire, we need to learn to become more comfortable with fire, and the smoke exposures that come along with it. And that really comes down to you know, empowering individuals, empowering communities, and then doing some big picture thinking about the built environment, the building codes. You know, the way we've built buildings before probably isn't okay into the climate future. We need to have much better control over the indoor environment to help protect us from those things that are happening in the outdoor environment. Yeah, absolutely. So you're talking about building codes. I'm wondering if you have any other sort of public health policy or initiatives that you've seen 
that have worked, especially maybe at the municipal level even. Um, you know, in, in Seattle, I'm thinking of this specifically because I was a PIO on the Bolt Creek Fire, and people were really concerned about the, the houseless community, they were concerned about vulnerable communities, and people who couldn't get away from the smoke and didn't have, you know, didn't have the knowledge that they needed to find those resources, or didn't have the sort of basis to find those resources. So I'm wondering if you can think of any specifics. I know that like clean air shelters have gotten a lot of attention as a potential good solution at a, at a community level, especially in vulnerable communities, but do you have anything else that you can recommend there? The question of susceptibility to smoke is a big one. Mm -hmm. As with so many other things in society, these exposures do not impact everyone equally. Um, anybody who has material resources to help them avoid these exposures is going to be in a much better position. Anybody who has high baseline health to begin with, and we know that that's associated with material resources and education and all of these things, is going to be more resilient to these exposures when, we, when they occur. Mm -hmm. So part of my thinking in public health is, is not that we ignore <laughs> Uh, the people who fit into those categories, but because the risk is disproportionate, our response also needs to be disproportionate in the other direction so that we're helping to balance things out a little bit. So we do need to focus quite specifically on these more susceptible populations. Now, individuals who are experiencing homelessness or housing insecurity, they are at high risk potentially because they are more in the outdoor environment, but we would be very foolish to be telling ourselves that, you know, low quality housing is very protective from wildfire smoke. It isn't. We can easily see 100% infiltration of outdoor smoke into the indoor environment in indoor environments that that are lower quality um, so <laughs> these are difficult challenging problems and I think the first step is helping people to understand that smoke is air pollution it's a form of air pollution just like vehicle exhaust and just like emissions from industry it's different from those forms of air pollution but it's air pollution um, helping them to understand that it's air pollution helping them to understand that it does affect health helping them to understand that anything they do to help reduce their exposures does help to protect their health the more they can reduce their exposures the more their health is protected. And then thinking through those ways that we can get to exposure reduction. Mm -hmm. And cleaner air shelters are, are one of the mechanisms. In the longer term, higher quality housing for everyone is going to be the best mechanism. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. And have you seen anything, of, have you seen it being effective to to provide grant programs for um, individuals to get better filtration systems in their homes? Like, are there, are there any mechanisms there that you can think of that are effective? So uh, we're starting to see some shifts in, you know, there's quite a lot of different energy retrofit programs available to help make 
individual homes more efficient. We're starting to see some shifts in those programs that are adapting to the changing climate and thinking about things like indoor air filtration and mechanical cooling. Are we fully there yet? Absolutely not. What I would rather see is other mechanisms by which people can access protective technologies. So, you know, you're in the States, I'm in Canada, we have a single payer healthcare system. What are the opportunities to classify something like a portable air cleaner or portable air conditioner as uh, medically necessary and once it becomes medically necessary then it becomes a healthcare cost and maintenance of those technologies can also become a healthcare cost so that, you know say you receive a prescription every two months for a new filter for your indoor air cleaner those types of policies that really do start to benefit the people who are most susceptible, because what we do know about energy retrofit programs is you you may receive some subsidy, but you're still looking at significant out-of-pocket costs, and that makes those programs only available to that certain subset of the population that are already kind of inherently more protected anyhow. Absolutely. Wow, that's a fascinating. I had never considered that as I had I have never heard of that as an option of like. That's a genuine policy shift that can that can happen. That it's certainly being discussed at different tables. Cool. Yeah. I'm not how sure how many jurisdictions have actually shifted there. These decisions often take a long time. There's a significant amount of, you know, analysis that needs to go into them from a cost benefit perspective, but I know the conversations are happening. Wow, awesome. Well, those were all the uh, questions that I had, but do you have any other, any other insights you'd like to talk about or provide? I'll just come back to this point of empowering individuals and communities to live with smoke. It's not going anywhere. It's quite possible that it's going to get worse in the decades ahead. I mean, this, is, this has been a hell of a 10 years <laughs> in the wildfire and smoke world. I always tell people to go into every wildfire season expecting the unexpected because that just seems to be the way things are going. So, again, we have to learn to live with this, and what we need is smoke-resilient populations, and that resiliency is multifaceted. Uh, It comes from many different places, and... It's going to take a while to get there, but we have to stop fighting smoke. We have to shift into smoke acceptance and smoke resilience so that people don't get angry about smoke anymore because that's, it's just not helpful. Absolutely, yeah. Yeah, it's as much of a policy problem as it is a cultural problem, as, as like a social problem, yeah. like not understanding... I mean, that was really the question I was getting a lot is like, why is it all of a sudden worse this year than last than the previous years? And I'm like, I hate to tell you, I hate to be the one to tell you this, but it's probably going to continue being this bad. Like, well, and, and some of it's perception as well. Having, 
having worked with communities that have been significantly smoke exposed, last summer is very easy to forget. It is. It's um, easy to forget. I mean, even now, like two weeks after those smoke exactly. impacts, people have completely forgotten. Exactly. <laughs> and then, you know, next summer it'll get really bad and people say, oh, this is the bad, worst it's ever been. But when you go back through the data, you actually realize, no, 28 was the worst, you know, 2018 was the worst it's ever been. So that that's really kind of a perception problem. Um, and yeah, there's there's all these policy shifts that, that need to happen and need to be considered, but it, it really is kind of that human behavior and human response question that I think will actually help drive some of those policy shifts. We, we talk a lot about this conference about suppression and exclusion of fire from the landscape and uh, the damage that those management practices have caused over time and, and part of the reason that we're in this very uh, intense and volatile wildfire situation, it's also removed smoke from the landscape. So these exposures do seem quite new and novel, um, whereas in a counterfactual world where we had managed fire differently over the past 70 years, we might have a population that had a different relationship with smoke than it currently does. Yeah. All right, that is what we have for you. I have another session to get to here in about five minutes, so I'm going to take this uh, opportunity to thank you guys for listening and um, I'll try to get more sort of insights and perspectives to you from the IAWF conference up here in Edmonton. But thanks for listening. Um, please share this with anybody who you think might be interested in learning more about uh, public health impacts of wildfire smoke and kind of how we can better communicate about those impacts in the future and how we can potentially prepare our communities for living with wildfire smoke. So I think that's a very prominent issue right now. Um, and as I mentioned in the, in the episode, uh, we have had a lot of discussion about this, especially in the Seattle area with uh, all of the wildfire smoke that we were dealing with at the end of the summer and into the fall. So I think this is a very pressing issue for many folks in the West right now, even if it's fall and even if it's raining and snowing in many places, I think it's still a great time to think about how we can prepare for next summer. So with that being said, thank you for listening and we will catch you on the next one.